In the last couple of years, I felt numb to environmental tragedy. Not that I'm emotionally dead inside, that's a different story, but when confronted with a worldwide or statewide disaster, I would generally feel sad, maybe tear up a little, but then move on in the next couple of days. Truthfully, I bet you felt the same. It's just because it's become so frequent. Maybe 10 years ago, there would be a devastating hurricane that would wipe out most of a city, but now... We experience relenting fires, terrible earthquakes, hurricanes, and of course, floods. Which is why we are bringing you this episode today. A couple of months ago, Maryland experienced terrible flooding. Homes, businesses, and infrastructures were destroyed. I did what everyone did. I felt bad, but then I moved on. But during that time, we got a DM from a lovely person named Tila. Remember... We love when you message us, so feel free to do so. She wanted to bring awareness to the tragedy in Ellicott City because, let's be honest, some of us probably forgot it happened. So, this episode is about the great state of Maryland, with an emphasis of Ellicott City. Even though it isn't talked about in the news currently, it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. So, sit back, relax and enjoy our Tales of Two Cities, Maryland episode. Hello? Welcome. This is Flames of the Two Cities. Oh, I'm so excited. Ellicott City, founded in 1772, lies on the valleys between the Tiber and Patapsco Rivers. Their station, Ellicott City Station, is one of the oldest surviving train stations in the United States. It is an unincorporated community and, of 2010, has a population of 6,500. But being such an old community comes some demons, some questionable darkness that tends to come back every now and then. Like, for example, the Lilburn Estate, built in 1857 by Henry Richard Hazelhurst. Like many affluent families during that time, please refer to our other episodes on the Whaley House and the Winchester House, etc., the Hazelhurst experienced some heartbreaks. Mr. Hazelhurst lost his wife and several children due to disease and accidents. He outlived most of his family and died in 1900 at the age of 85. In 1923, the McGinnis family bought the property. Even though it was already rumored that the house had some ghostly activity, It was a historic mansion on a historic town. Who would pass up on that? Which is what the McGinnis family experienced. When they bought the house, they constantly heard footsteps. They even heard other strange noises that could not have been explained. Some believe it was the daughter of Henry Hazelhurst, which I don't really understand because she died in childbirth, so how would she be walking around? That same year, in 1923, a fire broke out during Christmas, destroying much of the mansion. It had to be completely rebuilt, especially the tower. However, once the tower was rebuilt, the ghostly activity increased, also igniting the activity in the city. Which leads me to the Patapsco Female Institute, a girls' school sitting right above Ellicott City on Church Road. 
The school is one of the first female schools in the South when it opened in 1839. The walls consisted of yellow granite and huge columns surrounded the perimeter. The West Wing had a huge ballroom with fine hardwood floors and elegant tapestries and furnishings decorated the rooms. Despite being so affluent, it wasn't the most modern. It had no bathrooms, so the students had to use chamber pots, and since the building was made of stone, it was very cold in winter. Sickness became a common problem, to the point that some died. One of which was Annie Van Derlet, the daughter of a southern planter. She died of pneumonia during her first winter at the school, yet many believe that she still remains. Some have seen her roaming the ruins where her classrooms and dormitory was wearing a long gown, only to disappear into nothing. It was known that Van Derlet hated her Ellicott City home. She sent a number of letters home which protested her, quote, incarceration, and generally spoke badly of the school. So, if the stories were true, and she was wandering the ruins of her incarceration, how haunting is it to know that people have seen a girl in her own personal hell? The school fell into disrepair and closed around 1891 due to the issues of the Civil War. As we all know, the South changed drastically and etiquette and manners became second nature in importance. That same year, however, it was purchased by James E. Tyson and turned into a hotel. He added a pool and stretched out the porch, which, like I said before, are now just a bunch of ruins. Fourteen years later, Byrne Alwick bought the property for Miss Lily Tyson. She lived in it for three years. In 1917, the school became a hospital for World War I veterans. In the 1930s, the building became known as the Hilltop Theater, but later closed in the 1940s. The building went from Miss Magnolia Brennan to her daughter to Dr. James J. Wisman to the University of Cincinnati, who then gut the building. The building has been partially restored for events, but as I said before, sometimes extra guests arrive when they weren't invited. For example, Annie. Mount Ida is another famous building in the unincorporated community. It was designed by architect N.G. Starkweather, who also designed the chapel for the Patapsco Female Institute. However, it was built by Charles Timonis for William Ellicott, grandson of Andrew Ellicott, one of the founders of Ellicott Mills. In 1838, William died at the age of 43, and in the 1850s, it became home of Judge John Snowden Tyson. He lived there peacefully with his family until the 1870s when the paranormal activity started to occur. After Judge Tyson's death, the eldest son was tragically killed in a boating accident, leaving his three sisters behind. The last of the family was Miss Ida Tyson, and many believe she never left. People that live in the house have heard the peculiar sound of keys, and people believe that it is Miss Ida's keys, rattling like when she used to roam the house. Oak Lawn is a small stone house that was built in the 1800s. It is hard to find since it is surrounded by other houses, but it's worth a look. It was built by Edward Parson Hayden, the first county clerk in Ellicott City, and used to live there with his wife and six children until his death in the 1850s. 
The building was passed through the hands of several owners until 1981, when it sat vacant for several years before eventually being adopted by the County Law Library. When owned by the County Law Library, clerks and secretaries often report lights turning on and off by themselves. They have also experienced the coffee pot heating up even when unplugged and, of course, are haunted by phantom footsteps through empty parts of the building. Many have heard and seen a rocky chair moving by itself, and have also smelled pleasant breakfast smells wandering the hallways. They have claimed the cooking ghost to be the cause of such a calamity. There's also another ghost at Oakland who tries to make its presence known. One of the workers who works late nights have noted that the napkins fold and refold in front of him all on their own on one occasion he believed the ghost appeared right before him he was working one late night when he noted a white haze at the corner of his eye when he looked in its general direction he saw a misty ball of vapor hanging in the air it was very dense but then it vanished however my last story about ellicott city is about the demon truck of seven hills road just behind the city lies a two-lane road twisting through the hills. It is believed that if you are driving that road at midnight, you will encounter the demon truck, a jet-black vehicle driven by a faceless entity. The truck appears out of thin air, chasing you at 100 miles an hour, with one intention, your death. Seven Hills Road or College Avenue has been the site of several accidents. However, the demon truck is rumored to be the cause, there are many accounts that have seen the truck, but this one seemed quite knowable. Quote, When I was 16 years old, my brother and I and some of our friends were out for one of our joy rides and just happened to come across Seven Hills by accident. It was well after midnight, and me being the level-headed one, I wanted to just go home, but my brother being the daredevil wanted to test the legend. It seemed like we were the only ones on the road. It was pitch black and dead silent when, out of nowhere, headlights were out on top of us. It freaked us out and thought the vehicle was going to ram into our car, but it didn't. We sped off and pulled off the road, but when we calmed down enough to get back on the road, the car was gone. It was nowhere, and the road stretched for miles. It was like the demon truck appeared out of nowhere. I never forgot that experience, and to this day, I'll never drive seven hills at night." End quote. New housing developments along College Avenue have changed the landscape, causing the demon truck's encounters to be sparse. Instead of a woodsy area, comes a road lined with luxury homes. However, even though the demon truck seems to have retired, now a cloak woman seems to spook drivers by standing on the road instead. Someone that experienced the demon lady states, quote, Last year, me and my friends went out looking for the ghost car, but we didn't see any black trucks. We did see a strange woman walking down the center of the road. She was wearing a black cloak with a hood. Soon as we saw her, we slammed the brakes, but she didn't pay any attention to us. When we passed her, she looked up into the car and we could see that she didn't have any pupils. Freaked us the fuck out and we hit the gas, but when we looked back, she was gone. We all saw her, so I know she was there. Lighthouses are intended to be beacons, a guiding light to provide direction to those at sea. They help orient ships away from the rocky shores or mark confluences. They stand guard to guide you to safety, 
away from danger, and maybe away from a dark history and a place of deep turmoil. At the confluence of the Potomac River and the Chesapeake Bay is a beautiful scene. Long stretches of beaches with abundant trees and what can only be described visually as serenity. But Point Lookout State Park in Scotland, Maryland, wasn't always so still. It has a long history, one rooted in the origin of this nation and through the grit of some of our darkest times. When I first started researching haunted places in Maryland, I wanted desperately to find something in Baltimore that spoke to me, a story that was interesting and multidimensional. My great-grandpa was from Baltimore, and I've been fascinated with reconnecting to that place. It was foundational in my family's being here. So, needless to say, it took a lot to derail me. But it was really the first story that I read about haunted Maryland that did it honoring a special point in the origins of this nation. But the owner of the land, Jennifer Taylor, refused the offer of $500 for his land unless he was named the keeper. The purchase was slowed over the bickering between Taylor and the county. But in 1828, Congress appointed a $4,500 award and a contract to John Donahue in 1830. Construction began before the land deed was secured, and Taylor argued with the government for two years after the lighthouse became operational on September 20, 1830. Donahue had built a story-and-a-half house, and the light was lit by James Davis, who, just a few months after taking his oath of office as lightkeeper, died. His daughter, Ann Davis, kept the light until 1847. This seemed like... A legitimate history. I found it supported on the website for the organization that's currently caring for the buildings. I mean, it was on Wikipedia, but it wasn't the only story. Point Lookout is also described as being part of St. Michael's Manor, one of three owned by Leonard Calvert, the first governor of Maryland, when it was just a colony. In the 200 years prior to the outbreak of the Civil War, the manor became a popular summer resort with cottages and a very large lighthouse. So, in this story, rather than being built up for the lightkeepers, it was a means of income for Calvert. Here, it's less about serving a purpose and more about serving Calvert's pocket. But then, the Civil War happened. It dramatically altered the point. 
Though the Civil War turned people away from summer vacations, and the owners began to suffer. In this story, it was the downfall of the resort that led to the building of the hospital for the wounded in the Union forces. The Hammond General Hospital served its first patients on August 17, 1862. In early 1863, the authorities on site ordered that a number of Confederate prisoners remain confirmed to the hospital grounds. These men were Southern Marylanders, who were accused of helping the Confederacy rather than the Union. Not long after the Battle of Gettysburg, the federal government made the decision to expand the hospital's ground and build an official prison for Confederate soldiers to be held as prisoners of war. Point Lookout was both close to the battlefield, but isolated enough to make escaping difficult. Thus, the site became known as Camp Hoffman, a rebel camp capable of holding 10,000 prisoners of war. Three forts were built to protect the area. Fort Lincoln still remains today. As the war grew uglier, more prisoners were assigned to Camp Hoffman. In September 1863, 4,000 Confederates were being held there. By December of that year, the number more than doubled to 9,000, and by June of the following year, more than 20,000 men were crowded in the camp. Since the camp was built for only 10,000 men, the conditions were poor. Wells became contaminated. Men literally froze to death as the structures provided little protection from the elements. At the end of the Civil War, in April 1865, federal officials began transferring the Confederates back south. By late June, the last prisoners were gone. In just under two years, 52,264 men were imprisoned at Point Lookout, and between 3,000 and 8,000 men died. By 1873, the Civil War had been over for nearly a decade, and a fog bell was added to the tower. A monument to honor the memory of the men that died was built by the state of Maryland and dedicated in 1876. In 1883, the lighthouse was raised to two full stories, adding more to the lightkeeper's quarters, including a summer kitchen and an extra bedroom. More additions and replacements continued to happen in the following years. The addition of a shed that led to moving the fog bell, and then the creation of a duplex for the keepers. Keepers by now were either civilian or Coast Guard keepers, but in 1939, the United States Coast Guard took control of the lighthouse, and keepers were pressured, though not required, to join the Coast Guard. Soon, the Navy began purchasing the land around the light, and on January 11, 1966, the light was deactivated and structures were turned over to the Navy. Civilians continued to live in the lighthouse until 1981, when a dispute about the failing well on site led to the 99-year lease being revoked. Soon, the area began to be picked apart. The Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum acquired the Fog Bell Tower in 1968. After the Navy had purchased much of the land around the lighthouse, the state of Maryland began to purchase land north of the lighthouse to carve out the Point Lookout State Park. It took until 2006 for the state to acquire the lighthouse. It was turned over to Maryland as a part of a land swap deal. This allowed the Point Lookout Lighthouse Preservation Society to restore the lighthouse complex to the 1927 structures. In 
What sounds like a versatile but historic structure that has served many purposes is a bit more than that. The lighthouse is also known as the most haunted lighthouse in America. So what makes it so haunted? Some suggest that the countless tragedies and disasters have pained the area with negative energy. Remember that the area served as a camp for prisoners of war. Temperatures are said to drop dramatically, and voices have been recorded in the lighthouse. Wounded soldiers are frequently seen in the area, and there's one apparition in particular that many say tell of the horrid conditions. Dorcas Coleman describes it best, quote, a figure appears ahead of you, on the edge of a clearing. It is of a man, bearded, ragged, and gaunt. As he draws nearer, you can see that his cheeks are sunken and eyes hollowed, giving the impression that they might rattle around in his head like marbles in a box. His clothes, what's left of them, appear to be homespun, of wool, too heavy to be the type normally worn on a warm, late summer day. He wears boots, dusty, the leather cracked, and his gait is loose, as if he's been walking for a long time. A canteen is slung across his shoulder. A belt that would normally sit at his waist hangs precariously from sharply angled hips. You find yourself staring and expect to make eye contact as he passes, but he continues to look straight ahead, seemingly oblivious to your presence. As he passes, you catch a whiff of a musty, hummus-like scent intermingled with gunpowder. Though unfriendly, you're impressed by the accuracy and intensity of what you assume to be historical reenactor. A few steps later, you turn to take another look, but he's gone, vanished. You stop and listen. There is no sound, other than the twittering of birds in the trees and your own breath. There's no one there. You feel the blood rush out of your head and your heart starts to race. You think you may have seen a ghost. These types of tales are frequent at Point Lookout. Over many years, there have been seemingly endless reports of paranormal experiences, some similar to that of Coleman's vignette, others more chilling. Despite the area being well-developed during the war, and many buildings being added and renovated, most frequently, the lighthouse is the location of the haunting. International parapsychologist Dr. Hans Holzer and his team were the first to investigate the haunted lighthouse more than 20 years ago. They recorded 24 distinct voices in the building, both male and female. Some were singing, others were talking, many of which were using what was described by the team as colorful language. One voice stated clearly, quote, fire if they get too close to you. It was likely a reference to the Confederate soldiers that were imprisoned in the area. Another argued, quote, let us not take objection to what they are doing, perhaps a response to the horrid conditions the Confederate soldiers were kept in. A female voice was recorded saying, my home, perhaps that of Ann Davis. The team and other lighthouse visitors have also reported chilly air in parts of the building and the smell of something rotten in one particular room. Oddly enough, when Dr. Holzer announced his inclination that the smell was coming from tormented spirits of Confederate soldiers or those accused of having Confederate sympathies, 
the smell disappeared. Orbs and other spectral visions have been reported by visitors. One mentioned seeing Ann Davis standing atop of the stairs in a white blouse and a long blue skirt. Several figures have appeared in photographs, the most famous being that of the Ghost of Lookout Point. It was taken during a seance in the house in the 1970s. Former resident Laura Berg is standing in the center, holding a candle, and just to her left, a foggy figure, that of a man in soldier's garb, including a weapon, sash, and one leg crossed over the other, is leaning against the wall. No one mentioned this during the seance. It was only captured on film. Park ranger Coleman has many spooky tales, such as this one. Quote, The incident I'm about to relate occurred on an unseasonably warm day in early March of 1977. I'd been a park ranger at Point Lookout for only two months. Although mine was a new job, Point Lookout was not new to me. I have lived my lifetime of 25 years in the Point Lookout area. I was working the evening shift. It was a weekday, and despite the beautiful, warm weather, there were few park visitors. At about 4.30 p.m., I was on the Potomac River beachfront, gathering and recording weather data, when I noticed an elderly woman standing about 40 yards from me. She caught my attention because she was strangely shuffling along, looking toward her feet. She appeared to be desperately looking for something she had lost in the grass. After I had watched for about five minutes, I walked over to offer my assistance. My first thought was that perhaps she'd lost her keys. She seemed very distant, and our conversation was very brief. I only remember three points she made. She did not need my assistance, she lived up the beach a ways, and she asked if I knew where the gravestones were that used to be where we were standing. I remember that for some reason, I felt I was imposing on the woman, and not wanting to be an imposition, I left to walk 300 yards east to the Chesapeake Bay shore to record more data. About five minutes later, while I was walking back to my truck, which I left parked near the river, I noticed that the woman had disappeared. It was then that I realized the adjacent parking lot was empty. Furthermore, from my vantage point since our conversation, I would have had to have seen any cars entering or leaving the area. None had. I did not conduct a search for the woman, though I often wish I had done so. A few hours later, I asked the park manager, Jerry Sward, if he knew anything about a graveyard near the Potomac River picnic area. He wanted to know why I was asking, so I told him about my odd encounter with the old woman. After Mr. Sward heard my story, he told me that there had once been a graveyard somewhere near where the mysterious lady had been wandering. It was the Taylor family graveyard. Its exact location is no longer known, but its former existence is well documented. Records show that one of the individuals buried in the lot is Elizabeth Taylor. Evidently, someone had come across the missing burial site and stolen her headstone. Elizabeth Taylor's grave marker was found in a local hotel by a Point Lookout park ranger. Some years later, my mother, Regina Hammett, and I went to the site where I talked to the old woman. We searched for signs of a graveyard using metal rods to probe down through the sand. 
Within minutes, we located a rectangular, rock-like form under about a foot of sand. Soon, we located several other possible gravestones, laid out in regular rows as one would expect. However, when we dug up a couple of these objects, we discovered that they were concrete foundations of an 1860s Civil War warehouse. The Taylor family cemetery has never been found. Could the strange woman have been the deceased Elizabeth Taylor, searching for the rest of her family? Coleman has also reported many other sightings. There's a man seen running across the road just after the ranger's truck has passed. Not just with Coleman, but with many of the rangers, crossing just in time to be seen in the rearview mirror, being seen only in the mirror, and appearing as if from nowhere. It happens near the original Confederate soldier cemetery, where prisoners who had died of smallpox were buried. It's been said that often the Confederate soldiers would trick Union guards into believing that they needed to be sent to the hospital. They would attempt to escape the hospital through the same woods the man is seen running through as he crosses the road. Power outages are also not uncommon at the point. When it goes out, there's nothing but darkness, so candles are kept available, and disembodied voices echo throughout the house. Once, former park manager Gary Sward reported hearing voices in the back of the house, but when he checked, no one was there. Then, he heard them in the front, and when he checked, again, there was nothing. This happened a lot for Jerry. One night in particular, it was too much, when he saw two men going through the house. Of course, when he followed them, there was nothing. But it wasn't just Jerry. Mrs. Sword also had strange experiences, She often heard fishermen calling for help, but found nothing and no one upon inspection. One night, she was awoken from sleep by the sound of old boots walking up and down the hall. She would occasionally report an awful smell from one of the rooms at night, perhaps the one reported by the original paranormal investigators. She also heard a woman's voice singing in the early morning, though she could never quite name the tune. She heard men laugh and talk often, but never found anyone, at least not for long. One time she heard men's voices, and when she checked the basement, she saw two people, figures really, but they were entirely transparent. Over the years, there have been many reports by staff and visitors of similar experiences. Today, the Point Lookout Lighthouse Preservation Society holds a nighttime paranormal investigation as a means to raise money for preservation and restoration initiatives. Though the lighthouse's reputation may be to blame for much of the damage inflicted, as many break-ins into the lighthouse are to experience the hauntings. It's ironic, isn't it, that something that is known for emitting light is full of such darkness. Though, I suppose lighthouses are intended to be a warning, Perhaps this lighthouse is not a warning of the shoals or a marking of the Potomac, but alerting people to go far away from this place. Thanks for listening. We truly appreciate it. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on the listening platform of your choice. We love hearing from you, and we really love when you reach out with suggestions for episodes like this one. 
So hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or email us at tales of two cities podcast at gmail.com. That's tales of the number two cities podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out our website, tales of two cities podcast, peruse our merch on T public. That's T E E P U B L I C.com or head to Patreon and pledge what you can. That's all for now, but stay tuned. October is coming, which means our Halloween marathon of minis will be returning soon. Until next time.